Let's be turning in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, where we've been and where we've been going. Um, been asking myself a little bit why we're in this text, and I think that the Lord wants us to be more and more mission-minded as we talk to people. Maybe even going into the Christmas holidays, we'll be ministering the gospel to people and uh, having comfortable and perhaps uncomfortable conversations about the meaning of Christmas, the incarnate birth of Christ. But this passage here is a mission that is very, very dramatic in terms of how it's um, explaining what's going to happen to the apostles. And we've been learning in Matthew 10 that this is like a, uh, a war manual. How do you approach the ministry? The calling of the 12, they were uniquely called. All different varieties of personalities and backgrounds coming together for this mission. There's no pretense. There's no, nothing you can earn to be put on this mission. But we, like them, are just ordinary men and, and then women as well brought into this great mission. And then it's a commission. And the Lord commissioned the 12 to go and to go to their own kinsmen. And that's verses 5 through 15. But now we move from calling the 12 to the commission to what is called the cautioning of the 12. With the call to this mission, there is a great caution. It's a dangerous mission to be on. This is not some kind of sugar-coated, come join the church to make your life better and more whole. Now, we are made whole in Christ. We are given the peace of God in our hearts, but we're sent out into a dangerous world. It's volatile. Uh, People are programmed by their sin to be repulsed by Christ, to not want that kind of accountability, and we need to know what we're in for. So let me read the text where Jesus is telling what the disciples, these apostles, were going to encounter. Verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father, the father, his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you. You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Let's stop there. A text like this, if you're like me, begs this kind of question. How bad is it really going to get? How bad is it really going to get in my own lifetime? How bad was it for the apostles? Well, it was this bad. How bad was it for the early church when Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father and we read in the book of Acts? How bad was it? It was, it was this bad. How bad will it be for us in our lifetime? I don't know. It'll be as bad as the Lord allows it to get, 
But ultimately, in the end times, it'll get this bad. We know that reading the book of Revelation. We're promised persecution. How bad? Well, this bad. This text is unique, um, and there are other passages like this in Scripture that are called a telescopic text. It's telescopic fulfillment. In other words, Jesus was sending the actual 12 to go out on mission and to experience these things. But most of these things actually wouldn't happen until Jesus had died, was buried, and rose again. He's at the right hand of the Father, and then they're experiencing this level of persecution as we see it unfold through the book of Acts. But then it also telescopes forward to the church, and we know through church history there's been persecution like this. We know that in Islamic third world countries and other areas of the world, we know that this kind of persecution is taking place. We're a parent in an Islamic family finding out that their son or daughter went away to college in our country and found Christ and they come back with their New Testament. It's found under the, you know, under the mattress or something and they're kicked out of the house or their life is put on the line. They're, they're shunned by the family. These dynamics are happening around the world today. And ultimately, it's going to happen all the way up as we learned in verse 23 that it's, this is a mission where we go from town to town all the way until the Son of Man comes and comes again. We're living in an unprecedented time. I used to think that persecution was more like a fantasy, you know, just something you, you read about, you know it's coming, you know it's true, but it could never happen to us. But again, with the bifurcation and division in our country, things could heat up very quickly. In the name of Christ, people could just say, Christ is wrong, Christ is to be hated. And then we are with Christ, and we're in that alignment. We're in that battle. We don't know what persecution will look like for us. I went away to college, and um, when I went to Christian school, I met a Russian student. He was a fellow pastoral ministries major, and he was sort of glib about how we carried on as Christians there because um, we weren't very sober about our faith. We didn't understand persecution, but Russia, you know, Russian Christianity during the 80s that he grew up in was Cold War time, and it was very difficult. And his pastor at that point in the early 90s was in prison. So he's saying, what, what, are, we, what are we acting like here instead of really getting together and praying and thinking hard about um, God's deliverance through persecution? I went to seminary with a Filipino man who took his large family to the Philippines into a dangerous area where He didn't know if he was going to be put in prison for his faith. Every time I would see him at Shepherd's Conference, I'm like, okay, he's still good. He's still there. But this is dynamic even in our world today. We're kind of in a war of attrition right now as Christians, and we need to be strong and be ready for the battle. This This is a text that can give us insight into how we're supposed to approach the mission we're all, we're all called to see how this all works out. We see it through the eyes and experiences of the apostles. And you say, well, we're not endued with the same kind of power as they are, so how do we relate to this? What's this exactly like? Uh, Jesus said to Nicodemus, we don't see the, the Holy Spirit. We see the effects of the Holy Spirit. The wind blows where it wills, and we see the effects of the Spirit. With the apostles, we actually see those dynamics up close and personally. So how do we relate Well, let's just put it in these terms. My oldest daughter is, uh, she's in New Mexico and she is um, a criminal justice major in college and she's been doing a security internship. 
And part of that internship in that border town um, bordering Mexico is to do what are called ride-alongs. And so she's in with a police officer, sometimes 11 o'clock till 3 in the morning in this border city. And um, that police officer will pull people over and he'll, you know, shake somebody down. That person's got illegal drugs. They're busted, the whole thing. But his clear instruction to my daughter is stay in the car. You have to stay in the vehicle. You have to stay behind the protective glass, you know, stay there. Well, what is she doing? She's observing everything that's going on. God bless her, right? Anyway, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this. But all that to say, it's a ride along. And that's how we should approach this text. We're in the squad car. We're watching the apostles do the work, put their lives on the line, encounter danger, and do things that we can learn from and principalize for our own lives. That's what we need to do. We need to benefit by learning through observation. Here's the question. How bad will things get? How bad will things get? Well, there's an increasing level of um, suffering in persecution that's described in this text. The first layer of suffering comes from the religious people. The religious people. We're going to see three levels of persecution. The first level is a religious level. It's where you're persecuted in 21st century times. Your persecution comes from the inside, from the church, from the church. Jesus is building a bridge here by using the analogy of being sheep going into the midst of wolves. You see that in verse 16. He says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. What does he mean? Well, he's saying that you as my missionaries are going out and you're going to be sheep in very dangerous territory. You're not to avoid the the wolves. You're going into the valley of the shadow of death where the wolves are preying upon you. You're going into an area that is dangerous territory, not around, but through. This warning is never meant to keep you from the wolves. It's to prepare you for what's coming. That's our mission. That's what we signed up for. And the apostles are called sheep. Why? Because sheep are some of the most vulnerable animals on the planet. They just, they go by the herd. Wherever the herd is going, they're going. I've interacted with sheep a little bit. My wife is an animal lover, so I can't disparage any animal really on the planet. But, but um, I've held a sheep and, you know, they're, they're furry or whatever, woolly. I don't know. They're not furry, I guess. But they're, they're dumb. They're dumb animals. And, and they are. They're just vulnerable. And, and they're prey. I mean, they can't, def- they can't fight back. They can't defend themselves. And they're just there. It's interesting, though, that um, Jesus had just sent the 12 in the commissioning verse. He sent them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he's calling the Israelites lost sheep because they are vulnerable to missing the Messiah. They've rejected the Messiah. They're lost. They they didn't connect the dots of the Old Testament to Jesus. And so they rejected Jesus. And so now he's raising up the 12 and saying, let's extend this ministry. Let's personalize it, go house to house, knock on the door and tell them and explain to them that the Messiah has come and do miracles like the Messiah would do to show them Jesus. They're lost. They're vulnerable to that. Well, what's going to happen is many of those Jews are going to turn from sheep to wolves And they're going to be the false teachers that are going to come after the sheep, which are the apostles. So sort of a mixing of metaphors here. But the whole point is vulnerability. Vulnerability. We're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to attack. 
Matthew 7, 15, we've covered it, but beware of the false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Wolves are meant, they rip things apart. It's, it's, it's imagery that's bloody. And, and the enemies are strong. Paul warned the elders at Miletus, the Ephesian elders, saying that I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. This is nothing new. We know this. We know that if they, if they attacked our master, then they're going to attack the servant. That's John 15. We know this. We know this. It's a warning. But Jesus is sending the apostles into this war-torn situation. And we're never supposed to go with kind of a reckless bravado, right? We need to go with humility, We need to go with nobility, but we need to be humble. We're not trying to win something as if to to beat down the enemy. We're trying to win someone to Christ. And so how do we do that? Well, it says in verse 16, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. The wisdom of a serpent, you think serpent, uh, usually in a negative context, you think of Genesis 3. The serpent was the most cunning animal that, that was on the planet. And it is a picture of cunning wisdom to be, um, I guess, a serpent. Um, and, you know, the Egyptians even would, would display serpents on their hieroglyphics as, as wise animals, shrewd, thinking animals. I don't have a whole lot of time for snakes. I mentioned in the first hour that, uh, you know, a snake actually entered into our home by way of living in an aquarium. It terrified me. And um, I eventually excised that demon from the house and uh, made it safe again, replaced it with a gecko, but, um, <laughs> so the kids wouldn't throw me out. But, but a serpent is focused, and that's the point. We're supposed to be focused. We're called sheep. We are vulnerable, but we have the mind of Christ. We can discern good from evil. We're not just willy-nilly with our faith. We're not trying to run in with reckless bravado to be some kind of like martyr in a self-absorbed way. We don't have morbid self-absorption syndrome. We need to be those who are saying, I'm here. I'm ready to do battle with truth. And I'm ready to do it in a way that is loving and gracious and long-suffering. Never in a retaliatory way. We're not to retaliate. When Jesus was reviled, what? He did not revile in return. And that's the part that is counterbalancing our wisdom as serpents, but we're to be innocent as doves. Remember Paul in Acts 23 when he was meeting with the religious council? It says, Acts 23, 1, he was looking intensely at the council. Paul says, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood with him by him to strike him on the mouth. This is the religious people. This is Paul who was Saul, this religious leader who actually met Christ, who's actually an apostle, who's actually giving the gospel. Hit that guy in the mouth. Hit him in the mouth. It made Paul mad. And Paul got in the flesh. Listen to this, verse 3. Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. That's funny, but it's also not funny because he wasn't supposed to do that. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by, would you revile God's high priest? See, Paul didn't know who struck him. And Paul, being a man under authority, even the authority of the law, he said, I, do not, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Innocent as doves, obedience. Obeying the word of God in humility. 
even while we are attacked. The expectation is we're going to be delivered over. That word delivered over in verse 17, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts. That's the same word used of Christ being delivered over by Judas to the Roman guard. Delivered over is the idea of a prisoner delivering a prisoner over. Somebody telling on somebody, exposing someone else. We're going to be exposed. We should expect this to happen to us. We're not avoiding it. We're embracing it. We're understanding it. And the warning is to beware of men. Beware of men. Don't beware of losing everything. Don't beware of um, being shamed. Don't beware of being dragged through the mud. Don't be, beware of uh, you know, self-interest things. Just beware of the men. That's where the attack's coming from. There's a lot of things that can harm us, but the, what can harm our souls, what can harm other people and make them doubt their faith is false teaching. Little, little windows, little cracks in the door that, that take people astray. Last weekend, I was uh, you know, with a friend over a weekend time, and, and um, in a late night conversation, a guest had come over, and he began to espouse some things that were errant theology, and it's like, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night. We want to go to sleep, you know, get ready for the next day. But it was time to talk truth and, and to sort of deconstruct some things in love and in friendship and good camaraderie. But my concern is for truth to reign in um, the household I was with. And so you just unpack things and keep things in the truth. And that helps people because friendships will lead people astray. If you are friends with people who have errant theology, it will, it will take you astray. Just like turning one degree of the wheel to a ship, it ultimately over a long period of time will take you off course. So you have to guard your heart. Wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. You're not retaliating, but we are vulnerable. And we have to know that, that we have to beware of men Barclay said, men are agents of demonic hosts. We love our enemies, but we understand they are strategically being used to lead us astray. Remember Judas Iscariot. He was a man to be be warned of. He was a person who was a hypocrite and a heretic. He delivered Jesus over to the religious courts. He was trying to leverage the religious people to go after Christ what Barclay called fossilized orthodoxy. What, what they would do is ultimately is the religious centers would make a public example of someone like Paul, for instance, or, or Christ or the apostles. And they, they would do that to keep control over their false religion. So anybody that's speaking truth is enemy number one, and they would flog them in the synagogues, flogging, um, taking the cat of nine tails and lashing people in their, in their backs or whipping people, flogging them, sometimes beating them with baseball bats. Um, in 2 Corinthians 11, 20, 24, Paul said, five times I received from the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. The law in Deuteronomy 25 prescribed 40 lashes. That would ultimately kill someone. So they would do 39 as a picture of, we're gonna, we're gonna beat them all the way up to almost dying and then hold, pull back one. That's what Paul went through. They would sing psalms, history um, records, they would sing psalms of mockery to degrade people while they were being beaten. We know this is coming as well. In Revelation 11, 3 through 8, it speaks of the mystery Babylon, those who are are going to be under the religious tyranny, the, the two witnesses that are killed and they rise up again as a testimony of Christ. 
And then Revelation 17, 5 and 6, on the forehead was written the name of mystery. Babylon the Great, that's the picture of false religion, mother of prostitutes and the earth of abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. This is coming. This is coming from the religious centers. Second, the second level of persecution is government. Government. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Dragged before governors and kings. We know that Jesus was dragged before governors and kings. We, it's interesting to look at his trial in parallel to what these apostles were going to undergo. It's very similar stuff. You have two different courts. You have the religious court in Jesus' trial, and then you have the Roman court, right? You have two different people. You have the Herod, then you have Pontius Pilate, and it's confusing to even read. Like, where, where is Jesus being tried by? Who's, who's prosecuting him? Well, this is one tier and the second tier, and the second tier will be government. I'm thankful for government. I'm thankful that God has established it and instituted government. I'm thankful that government carries with it the sword. I'm thankful for the police officers that represent governing authority. I'm thankful for the military branches that represent governing authorities. I'm thankful for governments and, and our government and our governor. And I'm thankful for our mayor. I'm thankful for our president. I'm thankful for vice president. But I'm thankful in the sense that God established an instituted government. But I have to say quickly that government is not my religion. Government is not where I put my hope. Government does nothing to save my soul. Good government or bad government has nothing to do with whether I'm going to heaven or hell. It really doesn't. I praise God for the William Wilberforces that are of, uh, you know, of yesteryear who, who stood against slavery in, in the UK and that witness of Christ as he was, a, he was a strong Christian person in government and parliament. And we have strong Christians that are represented even in our own church and our church community that, that love the Lord, that are an awesome testimony in government. But I have to say this, government is a secular institution, it is. It is not a Christian institution, and it's run by and large by secular men and secular women. And so we have to be careful and understand that our hope is in God, our hope is in Christ, and our kingdom is not of this world, and we're thankful for what government does for us, but government will not save your soul. And gover- governance and Christian governance is not the goal unless it's the new heavens and the new earth. That's where it will be Christian governance. And that'll be a theocracy from a king. And we'll be his subjects. So we just have to be understanding that a lot of people are very, very concerned about our government. And their hearts are in their hands and they're discouraged and they're depressed by the state of things in our country. And we have to guard our joy and realize that if government is hard right now, If Christianity is coming under attack right now, if things are getting hot under the collar right now, it's time to rise up and fulfill this commission. It's time to get about the gospel, right? It's time for us to go into the dangerous arena as the lambs amongst the wolves because things are going to happen. And oftentimes, as scripture records, government is the one dragging people before governors and kings for my sake. Who were these people? Well, in biblical times, you have the Roman procurators, Pilate, Felix, and Festus. They were the governors. And then you have the kings, like King Agrippa, and you have the Herods. And you remember, 
Jesus, he faced the Pharisees in the religious realm, and then he faced Herod and then Pilate. You have Paul who was, was facing Felix and Festus and Agrippa. And he was strong in that. Open your Bibles, turn over to Acts chapter 25. In Acts 25, you see a, a good representation of Paul contending for the faith in a governing situation. The religious leaders had really put him before trial. And in Acts 25, verse 10, it says, Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. What's Paul doing here? Well, he's saying, first of all, I've done nothing wrong in terms of the Jews. So if I need to be tried, I can be tried in this governing arena. If I need to be put to death, I'm okay with that because I have eternal life. But at the same time, I'm going to be wise as a serpent and, and argue governmentally that I'm going to make an appeal out of this court to Caesar's household. And that keeps him safe a little bit longer. But why was he doing that? He was doing that for the sake of the Gentiles. And that's what the text is talking about. Is it to... Is it to shame the Gentiles? Is it to rebuke the Gentiles? Or is it to win the Gentiles? If you look back at Matthew uh, chapter 10, verse 18, it says to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. It's bearing witness before both the Jew and the Greek, both God's chosen people and to all the world. It's always been that way. When people reject the message of Christ, it indicts them. But it also, when people receive the message of Christ... It invites them to the church. It's amazing. And so as, per, as persecution heats up, guess what's going to happen? Your witness will be magnified. As things get harder, Christ stands out more distinct. As, as the, you know, the lens on the camera becomes unblurred between what is um, American culture and Christian culture, and it becomes clear that there's a difference between the two, Christ stands stronger. And people go, oh, that's what it means. That's Christ. That's what it means to be part of that family. I'm not saying we are not loyal citizens to our country. I'm so thankful for it. I'm so thankful for the sacrifice to be able to preach freely this morning and to enjoy this. But we do this not in place of our joy in Christ and our mission to the world. There's no more purified witness than someone who is stripped bare of their goods, of their security. And they're standing before a governor, standing before someone who can really do harm to their lives and they don't care. Just with open-heartedness saying, Jesus is Lord. That's the pure motive of this witness. So what's going on. It's a public witness. When given this public witness, though, I want to ask this question because verse 19 is so curious to me. It's so curious. What is the help that you need in that moment? I mean, this, is, this is where it's all going to rise and fall in life, right? Where we're standing before someone who could do us harm, who could take all of our savings, take all of our reputation, take our job away from us, um, isolate us from our family. What will we do in that moment? What do we need most of all? A lot of us 
um, initially will say, I want, want you know, physical safety. I don't, I don't want to get beat up. I don't do well under duress. I want you know, my family to be okay. I want to make sure I can provide for my family still. So I want these things. I don't want to witness for Christ. But what does Jesus address? By what he addresses, I think he gets to the center of what our chief concern should really be. Look at that in verse 19. When they deliver you over, there's that word delivering over, do not be anxious. Don't worry about this. Don't be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say or what you are to say for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, in that very moment. So the chief concern in that moment is that you say what God wants you to say. You say, well, is that my chief concern, really? Well, let's put it in a deeper level. The chief concern for you in that moment is that you do not renounce the faith. The chief concern for you in that moment is that you do not deny Christ three times like Peter did, right? Your life's on the line. What are you going to do? I don't want to choke. In that moment, I don't want to choke. You say, that's a hard thing to think about, isn't it? Who here would admit that they, in the 70s, being raised up, raised in the 70s, watched the Left Behind series on those rickety old projectors in evening church? I did. We had a lot more first-hour people who did, but, or you're not admitting it. But those, those movies terrified me. Those were scary. I was a five-year-old kid watching you know, the guillotine drop and the balloon go up to heaven to represent a soul going to heaven because their life was on the line. The number one concern out of that movie series is, would I choke? What would I do in that moment? Someone I deeply respect, I asked him one time, I was a brand new baby Christian. I said, I said so in that moment where you're, you're, you're under trial, you're on trial for Christ, and they're saying either reject Christ and say you don't believe in him or we're going to kill your wife, what would you do? And that person I deeply respect looked at me and said, well, I would fake it in the moment. I would do a two-step, make sure my wife was safe, and then I would come back and I would you know, reestablish my faith. And I thought, no, that's not okay. That's not okay. That's not what we're called to do. Well, how do we get there? Because that is the concern of our hearts, that we do not deny the faith, that we're strong in the moment when our faith is tested, when we have something to lose, when our, when our motivation is nothing but Christ. There's, there's no other motivation. There's no gain here um, on a secular level for standing for Christ anymore. Christ is hated. We are hated as his body. We're standing there. We're open and laid bare. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And why will I do the right thing? Well, we'll do the right thing because of this promise. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you are to speak or what you're to say for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. It's amazing. This is not the fear of failing an exam. This is not the fear of, um, you know, public speaking. Like, oh, you know, the number one fear people have is public speaking. No, that's not what we're talking about. It's the fear of denying Christ, of being a hypocrite, of choking in um, the ultimate moment of your life. You don't want to go AWOL in the battle. This military man told me one time, there are worse things that can happen to you on the battlefield than dying. And that's going AWOL. That's going, you know, off the grid, being absent without official leave. It's um, hiding instead of putting yourself out there in harm's way. We're called to do the right thing. You remember the apostles, they scattered, right? Right? 
when, when the Roman guard came, all of them scattered. Peter denied Christ. Judas Iscariot had turned Jesus over in the first place. But what happened? The 11 of the 12, those who were truly saved, they repented. Peter repented. They were re-fortified after Christ rose from death, and they were strengthened to carry out the mission. They weren't perfect, but they were enduring through because of the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, I don't know what I'll do in that moment. Well, I would compare this <coughs> to something like a roller coaster ride. When, you, when you're on the outside of a who's been to a theme park before? You ever see that? You know, not just the, well, the fair is like that too, actually. We could bring it to Palmer in our minds. There are some rides, I see that hand. There are some rides out there that are kind of scary. That when you walk up to it and you see their coaster go by, and it's like you hear people screaming for their lives. Right? And you're just like, man, you know, I don't know if I want to do that. I mean, I'm here. I paid a lot of money. I don't know if I want to get on. But then once you become courageous and get on that ride and you're strapped in and you're going, it's, it's easier than you ever thought it would be because you've kind of adjusted to it. I think that's what it's going to be like in the, in the moment of truth. When you're there, you go, okay, I'm good. And I'm okay if my family dies or if I die and I'm going to live for Christ. I've gone to the point of my return. If you've ever gone into a surgery, right, and you've, you're anxious about it and you're praying about it and you want to be okay and then then you go, okay, I'm in the doctor's hands. Come what may, right? And you go and you go under. In, in the same way, we stand before the Lord and we say, I'm in your hands. Come what may. And I'll give the gospel. That's the mission. That's the mindset that we see uh, the apostles have at every turn. And this is the mindset that we have to carry into the dinner table discussion around Christmas when we have to give the gospel, when we say what it's all about, when we confront a teenager, when we deal with life. It's all by grace that we say anything. You think about the parent of the special needs handicapped child and you you look on the outside and go, how did they do it? How do they sacrifice? How do they get there from here? Well, they just do it. Why? Well, as Christians who have a special needs child, they do it by grace. They would say, God gave me the grace to do whatever I needed to do, no matter how hard it got. That's the mindset that is promoted here in this promise. You'll have what you need to say. You'll know who you are. You'll know why you're there. You'll know your comment, your content. You'll have commensurate grace with the pressure and the trial that you are undergoing. Look at verse 20. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. It's amazing. What a promise. This is not like demonic possession in the spiritual, you know, in the godly sense. When a person is demon possessed, they'll often, you know, have a different voice. They'll be speaking in, you know, through the the mind of the demon. But for a Christian... The apostles, and I would principalize this for us, in that moment, we are who we are. We have our own personality, our own situation, our own circumstances. We have our own aptitude, our own ability, and we just speak by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like the authors who authored under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, our 66 books of the Bible, they had their personalities, they had their situation, they had their circumstances, and the Spirit of God moved through them, superintending them to write precisely what we have in Scripture. What we say in that moment won't be inspired. We're not apostles, but we are given the same promise that God is with us always, even to the end of the age. And it'll give us the boldness and the courage and the grace to stand up and be what Revelation describes as overcomers. 
those who continue it to the end. We don't flinch. We don't give up. We might stumble. We might be like Job as you read through the book of Job. 42 chapters of struggle, but in the end, he stood strong, never knowing all of why, what had happened to him in this lifetime, but nothing could destroy his indestructible, true saving faith. Peter, who denied Christ three times. David, who fell in adultery and murder, and yet was a true believer who came clear and repented of his sins. That's who we are. We're those who keep going, not around the storm, but through the storm. How does this apply? Scripture comes to mind. You're not inspired, but we have the mind of Christ in Scripture. I don't know how to deal with this trial in my life. I don't know how to deal with the fact that someone I love in this life has already died or is soon to death. I don't know what I'm going to do when I need to witness this person that's going to risk our relationship. I don't know why this storm has, I, has come upon me and I don't know how to get out of it. But God will bring to, to mind Bible verses. You kids that are being raised in Awana or children's ministry or Christian school, God's planting Bible verses in your minds. And many of the adults in this room would say that's true. And there were Bible verse moments where I had no other solution, no other answer, no other rhyme or reason for why I'm doing what I'm doing or why I'm behaving or making this decision or staying or going or happening and things happening in your relationships and all of that stuff. You have no idea what to do, but God's word strikes like lightning in your heart and says, here's the clear answer. That's the promise applied to us. We're in the ride along. We're not the apostle. We're not the police officer, but we're learning. We're learning. We're watching. We're seeing how the will of the Lord plays out through his Holy Spirit. We see this in Peter and Stephen's preaching and Paul's preaching. They related everything in their moment of truth. In the book of Acts, they related everything to the gospel. People would say, you're breaking the law. You know, you're, you're turning the world upside down. You're messing up our religion. You're messing up our, our scam where we're trying to, you know, sell things to the idol makers. You're messing up our idol making factory. I mean, all these different people would bring persecution for secular interests, and they would say, oh, okay, well, it's really all about Jesus. I love the Lord. The Old Testament was about Jesus, and this is how that harmonizes. And people would go, I don't all the way get it. Or, and, and then they would say something, and, Jesus, and Paul would say, you're not far from the kingdom. And I mean, there, there would be these moments of clarity where the person under persecution realizes why they're really there. Other people have you there for other reasons, but you go, oh, this is why I'm here. And this is what I'm about. And the Spirit of God gives you that wisdom. Well, that leads us to the final level of persecution. The first is religious, pretty severe, pretty hard. Second is governing authorities. Thirdly, your family. What's the hardest level of persecution? It's when your own turn on you. That's what this is describing here. It's horrible. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death and father the father, excuse me, his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. How awful. That's like, you know, I mean, I don't recommend this movie, but like Hunger Games type stuff. It's just, it's cannibalism. It's scary. It's scary to think about people killing each other that are supposed to love each other. Blood brothers, people raised um, together in the same household going, I hate you now. That's how... Vile and wicked sin is the hardness of the heart where people turn on each other, 
children turning on parents, parents turning on their own child, their adult children, turning them over to the authorities to be killed for the faith. This looks like a dystopian post-apocalyptic you know, terrorism that's, that's happening. But we know that these things, as I alluded to before, are happening in our, even in our world today. They're happening. They're happening behind closed doors in our country, but in public ways, in public arenas, in countries around the world, Islamic religion and different things where the, you know, they're, they're infidels. These, the, your, your child is now an infidel, needs to be ostracized or needs to be killed or needs to be put in prison. This is what false religion from the devil does. It's violent, it's vitriolic, it's nightmarish, it's difficult to imagine, but it is real. And Jesus sugarcoats nothing. This is what we signed up for. He's saying you are part of a dangerous, dangerous mission. What are we supposed to do in this dangerous mission? One thing. This is why you have the tiers of difficulty described. Religious, government, family. No matter how hard it gets, you're supposed to do one thing. The one thing you're supposed to do is this, persevere. That's what it means to not deny the faith. Um, the opposite of quitting is persevering. It's to endure. It's to endure. That's what we see here. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, verse 22. All? Yeah, everybody. Not everybody. And we know that our Christian friends love us. <laughs> We're not hated by everybody. But all kinds of people will hate us. Family members, government workers, religious leaders, all kinds of people will hate us. That's what he means. But no matter what, we're supposed to endure. No matter what category comes for us, we keep going. It says, but the one who endures, hupomone, the one who endures, bears up under. It's the same word used in James 1, 1 through 3. Um, It's to um, endure, to persevere, to keep going no matter what, to bear up under, to not run from the trial, but bear up under it by the power of the Holy Spirit and keep going through it, to not quit. And in the end, you'll be saved. What does that mean? Well, once you're saved, you're always saved. You're saved in a point in time and space in your living history. You're saved, you're converted, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's forever. But that kind of person, that quality of person that is saved will endure to the end. That kind of marathoner finishes the race. It's James 1.12. He who continues all the way to the end receives the crown of life. The crown of life is eternal life. You're not earning eternal life by finishing the race. You're establishing, you're vindicating that you had life while on the race and you will finish it. Those who continue to the end are saved. It's revelation again. The overcomers are the ones that are saved. You have the Messiah's missionaries that were being delivered over by their own kinsmen. You have the apostles and the early church delivered over to the governors. You see families turning on families now, and it will be more so in the future. But we are his, as John, a third John says, we are his who are the sent ones who went out for the sake of the name. Our goal is perseverance. Our goal is to not quit no matter what, to not fold while we're undergoing severe, severe fire, proving who we really are. What about three, den- three denials of Peter? He didn't lose his salvation. His faith faltered, but it did not utterly fail. That's the point. You make it in the bumpy way of life. 
where you're faltering and stumbling, but you don't utterly fall away and you stay alive at the end and you go across the finish line. I don't expect to go across the finish line first. I don't expect to go like this and and break the tape. I expect to go across the finish line by just falling down at the feet of Jesus and making it to the end. That's what he's talking about here. Enduring, enduring. It's when all the life support comes off of you, the Christian family life support, the Christian school life support, the you know, the Christian church, um, you know, where you're at located here, that life support comes off and you're left stripped naked and bare before the Lord, but you make it all the way to the end. You say, my heart is still beating because I am his and he is mine. I love the Lord. I love the Lord. Well, this picture of perseverance is um, finally kind of crystallized in verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, You will have not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. When are we supposed to stop? We don't stop till Jesus comes. One town rejects you, keep going. You persevere. You push through. And you don't stop. Sometimes it looks like you you kind of like you hole up for a little while and recover and and keep going. It's an odd version of perseverance where Winston Churchill compared um, his country to lobsters. (laughs) It's in a book called Why France Fell. And Andre Moreau was talking to uh, Winston Churchill um, at the beginning of the Second World War, where England seemed to strangely become inactive and unwilling to action. And Churchill said to Moreau, have you observed the habits of lobsters? It's a surprising question. Moreau said no. Churchill went on, well, if you have the opportunity, study them. At certain periods in life, the lobster loses his protective shell. At this moment of his molting, even the bravest crustacean will retire into the crevice of a rock and waits patiently for a new carapace, which means a new shell, um, to grow. And as soon as the new armor has grown strong, he sallies out of the crevice and becomes once again a fierce fighter, the lord of the seas. There's a time when inaction is wiser than action and when escape is wiser than attack. Why do I say this? I just say this by way of encouragement. You might feel beaten down. You might feel like all your armor is stripped away and you got nothing left and you got nothing left in the fight. Go rely on the Holy Spirit. Go find God. Go get with God, with the Bible. Study. I'm thankful I've got my pulpit, you know, my pulpit sermon every week. I've got to go in deep and it keeps me going. I don't know what you guys do for yourselves. I really don't. I need this kind of accountability for my own life, but you got to get in the word of God and you got to get with the Lord and get vulnerable and desperate and then go back into the battle and endure all the way through.